Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast and you can donate to us if you like what we do via our Buy Me a Coffee page. Check the episode notes for links. A British researcher and secretary for Amnesty International got an idea one day on the train in 1990, moved to Portugal, had a number of difficulties, and then went on to write the most successful book series for children in history. I'm talking about Joanne Rowling, better known to the world as J.K. Interestingly, Ms. Rowling and I both lived in Portugal at the same time. While she was up in the city of Oporto, writing her stories in cafes, I was in Santarai and Lisbon, writing my things in cafes. The difference is, she is now one of the wealthiest people in the UK, with the most successful book series of its type ever, and I do a bunch of freelance business writing and some podcasts. Rowling's epic tale of a young wizard who enters a secret world of magic and comes into conflict with, essentially, an evil racist has captured the imagination of literally millions. And her personal story is a magical one, a tale of rags to riches, and what she has created will endure for generations. Ha, huh, a feel-good story. Or maybe she's a witch or a Satanist. Maybe she's a spendthrift or a radical feminist and or a transphobe or a Satanist spendthrift transphobe. Or maybe she doesn't really exist at all. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Wicked Witch of the West. West. Young Harry is whisked away from dire circumstances and soon becomes one of the leading figures at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. He learns key skills along the way, forms lasting bonds, and becomes an inspiration to his generation. Harry uses magic, a gift he was born with, to battle the Death Eaters, a group of pure-blood witches and warlocks who loathe normal humanity, known as Muggles, and they think that they, the magical people, should rule the Muggles. Harry finds himself in the middle of this conflict, particularly pitted against the main villain, Voldemort, or he who should not be named. Harry stands opposed to this ultimate evil, representing the side of good, despite his human frailties. I'm sorry, did you say say magic? Like, like, like magic magic? 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 Not the stuff people like Penn and Teller do, but like the stuff that devils Devils do? do? Well, that's That's scary. scary. That's certainly what a lot of fundamentalist and evangelical Christians think. They make a number of preposterous claims about the seven book series. The top ones being it normalizes witchcraft to children, making witchcraft and magic seem all right, which will then damn those innocent souls to an eternity in hell. 
it promotes Wicca, which is a recognized religion in some places, and so violates the separation of church and state when it's allowed to be taught in publicly funded schools or even just sits on a shelf in the library of those schools. The magic described in Harry Potter is more realistic than, say, in The Chronicles of Narnia or The Lord of the Rings. The Potter series refers to actual things like astrology, numerology, divination, alchemy, herbology, teleportation, demon summoning, and other occult practices. And the term the magic people use for non-magical people, muggles, is actually a coded slam against true believing Christians. The Harry Potter series is a tool for For evil. evil. Well, there's no such thing as witchcraft in the real world. The series does not promote Wicca, and even if it did, you can find copies of the Bible in various classrooms and school libraries, so who cares? And astrology, numerology, divination, alchemy, teleportation, and so on are also not real things. Neither is demon summoning. And we know all of this is hooey, because if any of this stuff were actually real, we'd see people using it all the time. I know I would, but we don't because they're not real. But religious folks dig deep into their various faith superstitions and declare it all to be a huge danger in varying degrees of alarmism. As of 2014, there have been no fewer than six separate book burnings of Harry Potter novels for religious reasons in the United States and even some in other countries like Poland. Yes, you heard that right. Book burnings. You know, like what the Nazis did. No idea how they plan to deal with the equally successful film franchise, since most of that is now digitally stored. In locations where the inflamed Christians could not get a permit to burn books, they had scissor parties where they sliced and diced the pages into a kind of a satanic confetti. Many of the people who participate in these book destruction soirees admit that they have never read the Harry Potter books. And on at least a couple of occasions, they also toss some Stephen King books on the fire for good measure, because, you know, he's scary. Writing for Christianity Today in the year 2000, Jackie Comschley says, quote, Literary device or not, witchcraft is real and dangerous. Again, I have to say it's not real because if it were, people would be using it all the time. Jackie also compares the series to, quote, rat poison mixed with orange soda. I guess meaning that it's a dangerous thing hidden inside something that seems nice. Other evangelicals have made similarly silly comparisons and metaphors. In 2001, the satirical news website The Onion wrote an article titled Harry Potter Sparks Rise in Satanism Among Children with interviews from leading Satanists, which some hardcore Christians thought was a real news article, and so they just added that to their proof pile. It's astonishing how often articles from The Onion get mistaken for actual news stories. Another thing that gets evangelical hackles up is the 2007 admission by Rowling that one of the key figures, Albus Dumbledore, is probably a homosexual. It's never really said explicitly in the books, but she always knew that it was there in the background. Her exact quote is, I like to think of him as gay. Several Christian commentators said, Aha! She's endorsing homosexuality, which the co-founder of the hard-right rock ministry said on TV is medically harmful, whatever that means. Rowling herself has said that she doesn't really care about this or any of the other ridiculous criticisms since, quote, the Christian fundamentalists were never my base. 
Orthodox Christians don't really like Potter either. The Bulgarian Orthodox Church, perhaps reacting to the fact that a Bulgarian had been cast as Victor Krum in the film version of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, took the time to write an article in which they warned that, quote, magic is not a children's game and people should never read a spell that is in one of those books aloud because if they did, because they're real spells, it would have dire consequences as if you could actually levitate an object simply by saying Wingardium Leviosa. There, I said it, and nothing is floating around this room, which is a pity because that would be super cool to be able to do. The Dean of Canterbury Cathedral in the UK, which is Anglican, a version of Christianity made up by Henry VIII so he could get a divorce, refused to let any filming for the film series happen in the cathedral because a good church should not be used to spread pagan images. But Nicholas Burry of Gloucester Cathedral offered up his place instead, as did Durham Cathedral. So they're in the movies and Canterbury is not. The Mormons don't seem bothered by the series, and Catholics likewise don't seem to be bothered except in Poland. And not all Christians in the aforementioned groups are rabidly frothing when they think about Harry Potter. Keep in mind, we're talking about the hardcore fundamentalists here, among the 40% or so of evangelicals who believe in the literal truth of the Bible. There are plenty of Christians who find, rather than Satanism, a clear Christian story that tells of remaining steadfast in the face of adversity and sacrifice for the greater good. Some Christian writers have gone so far as to say that all seven books are actually a Christian parable for our modern times. Adherents of Judaism also seem to not really have a problem with the books, but there was a bit of a kerfuffle when the last book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, was released at two in the morning Israel time on a Saturday, smack dab in the middle of Sabbath, which runs from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. But other than that, the Jews don't seem to have a problem with Harry Potter. Some Muslim folks side a bit more with the evangelical Christians. The books were banned outright in the UAE in schools, but not confusingly in bookshops. An Iranian newspaper called the book series, quote, a billion dollar Zionist project, which is confusing on a couple of levels, but of course they call everything they don't like Zionist, so that's really not a big surprise. However, the Iranian government refused to ban the books just the same. The man that many credit with being the inspiration for the two Boston Marathon bombers, the Australian Imam Faiz Mohammed, born in Australia but of Lebanese origin, said that Harry Potter was dangerous because it showed, quote, paganism, evil, magic, and drinking of unicorn blood. He seems to be unaware that unicorns are another thing mentioned in the books that doesn't really exist. Incidentally, some Wiccans object to being lumped in with the Potter books. Wiccans are all about invoking or calling into oneself the powers of the world, whereas the magical folk in the Harry Potter novels simply use magic, kind of like a tool, do this and then this happens, which is not what they're about at all. Having said that, however, some practicing Wiccans believe that maybe Rowling herself is secretly a Wiccan witch. Expelliarmus. There are plenty of, shall we call them conspiracy theories, about events in the books themselves. Warning, spoilers ahead in this section. If you don't want those, skip to the next bit. My favorite one is that Harry dreamed or possibly hallucinated the entire thing. He's still stuck under the stairs of the Dursleys, and this is his escape from that purgatorial, sometimes persecutorial world that he finds himself in. Disassociation is a bit of a blanket term for when people detach from reality as a coping mechanism. 
It's certainly possible that Harry, essentially living in an atmosphere of constant low-level trauma, has gone further than just disengaging from his environment, but created an elaborate fantasy world and narrative in which he becomes increasingly absorbed. Note that in the earlier books, he starts each school year with the Dursleys, but as time goes by, that ends and he is fully in his imaginary world, first with the Weasleys, then at 12 Grimmauld Place, and later on the run from the Death Eaters. Back in 2012, Steve Cloves, who worked on all the film scripts, said that he thought that this might in fact be the case, that it's all in Harry's head. He specifically mentions Alistair, a spider Harry ends up playing with while living under the stairs at Four Privet Drive. He wrote a whole scene with that spider, but it ended up getting cut because it wasn't important to the overall arc of the film. But shortly after the scenes that would have had Harry having this sort of pet spider, a very hairy Hagrid shows up. And later, Hagrid has a friend in the forest, a giant magical spider named Aragog. Rowling, who was part of this same talk with Cloves, did not poo-poo this idea, saying instead that this sort of thinking just goes to show how the books really resonate with people. So while she didn't confirm the theory, she also didn't outright deny it either. And that's good enough for some people on the internet. The theory was elaborated on by Carl Smallwood on Cracked.com, who noted that there are plenty of unusual magical injuries that happen to many characters in the overall tale, but Harry really only suffers broken glasses and bones which are things that could very often happen in the real world and perhaps point to physical abuse he suffers at the hands of the Dursleys, these real-world injuries somehow creeping into his elaborate fantasy escape world. Other entertainments have had similar theories, let's call them. For example, some people on the interwebs argue that Friends is entirely in Phoebe's head. The British show The Prisoner is all about the perception of reality versus actual reality and trying to discern what is and is not real. As an unnamed spy who quits the service is drugged and finds himself in a strange village on a remote island surrounded by people who want to know why he quit and who is subjected to all sorts of mind games to break his resolve. Another theory is that after the Battle of Hogwarts, there are all these bodies laid out, but the body of Severus Snape is not among them. So perhaps he did not, in fact, die. Well, then where is he? Who knows? There's another theory that says that Harry and Hermione are actually siblings, though I don't know what the proofs are for that. Another one of the prevalent theories comes from online Harry Potter forums around 2004 or so. Ron Weasley, later in his life, after the events of the books, will be sent back in time to the 19th century where he will become Dumbledore. This Rumbledore theory has several bits of possible evidence. They are both tall, thin, and have long fingers, or Dumbledore is specifically described as having long fingers, while Ron has large hands, which would obviously mean long fingers. They also both have red hair. Dumbledore's hair was auburn when he was younger. This is mentioned in Tom Riddle's diary. And while the book series specifically mentions many people's eye colors, including Dumbledore's, a sparkling blue, there is no mention at all of Ron's eye color, and Ron is Harry's best friend. This seems like an odd omission. Also note that Ron's father, Arthur, has blue eyes, though his mom has brown eyes. Both Ron and Dumbledore have a scar above their left knee. 
They both love sweets, yet Dumbledore mentions he lost his taste for Bernie Bott's every flavor beans after getting a vomit-flavored one when he was young. Ah, but there's a problem. Dumbledore is over 150 years old, and Bernie Bott was born in 1935. Therefore, he was somewhere in his 50s or maybe 60s before he ever had a Bernie Bott's every flavor bean to begin with, hardly what we would call young. For many people, this is the smoking gun of the Rumbledore theory. It's also noted that when Dumbledore looks into the mirror of Erised, which shows you what you secretly most desire, he sees himself holding a pair of thick socks. Now, Ron's mother was constantly giving him socks, and he didn't really like them. But if he then becomes Dumbledore, that older version of himself now wistfully looks back on those years with fondness and perhaps a bit of longing. In the Order of the Phoenix, Draco sings a song he made up called Weasley is Our King, and one of the lyrics says that Weasley was born in a bin, a reference to how poor the Weasleys are, but bin as a prefix means two at a time, as in the words binary and binocular. In both those words, the prefix is bin, not by. It's bin-ocular, not binocular. While cleaning up Grimmauld Place, Ron gets tangled up in purple wizard robes. Dumbledore wears purple wizard robes. And of course, let's not forget that Dumbledore seems to know every tiny detail about Harry and his life, though in theory, they didn't meet until Harry got to Hogwarts. The theory goes on to say this is obviously because he is Ron and they had shared so much. In 2014, Rowling said in an interview she regretted having Ron and Hermione get together because Ron cannot possibly make Hermione happy in the long run, and Harry would have been a better match for her. But originally, she's conceived of the pairings the way they play out in the books and the movies, and so she just stubbornly stuck with it. Some Rumbledore adherents see this as tacit admission that Ron later travels in time to become Dumbledore. Yes, Ron is straight and Dumbledore is gay, but aha, say the Star Wars, time travel reverses your sexual orientation. That should put quite a crimp in time travel tourism. The Rumbledore theory bounced around the internet for ages in 2015. Rowling tweeted that the similarities between Ron and Dumbledore are, in fact, coincidental. But she would say that, wouldn't she? Axio Suspicion. Rowling herself has been scrutinized and theorized about a plenty, which has come as no surprise in a world of increasing income disparity and yet obsession with success and celebrity. Some have noted that newspapers said that she was richer than the queen, and yet her estimated net worth is only around $800 million, which is plenty of money, but she's not she's even, not a, even billionaire. a billionaire. That doesn't seem right at all. Where's, Where's all, that, all money that money going? going? Is she secretly funding the Illuminati slash New World Order slash aliens soon to be overlords? Does she run a world-spanning pedophile ring, which has got to be expensive? Does she have a summer home in the middle of the hollow earth or on the far side of the moon? Coming from humble beginnings as she does, she is a massive donor to charities. Some years ago, she started the Volant Charitable Trust, which helps reduce poverty and income inequity to the tune of £5 million a year. And this is just one of her many philanthropic projects. Why, just last year, in the midst of the pandemic, she gave a million pounds to Crisis and Refuge, who help homeless people as well as people suffering domestic abuse. In 2011, she gave away $160 million, at the time 16% of her worth. And unusually for a rich person, she also pays her taxes. So that is where the money is going. 
A bit of polyjuice poly poly potion. Poly the greatest conspiracy theory of all, though, is that J.K. Rowling is a fake, an actor paid to be a front for the real people who wrote the Harry Potter books. This theory was first promoted by Nina Grunfeld, a Norwegian film director. In 2005, she said the whole story of having the whole plot of the seven-book series just kind of pop into Rowling's mind one day while sitting on a train just seemed too good to possibly be true, because that's just not how inspiration works. Well, that may not be how inspiration works for Nina Grunfeld, but it certainly is how it works for me. I often have very complex ideas and plots and projects appear kind of fully formed in my mind because my noodle's been working on things in the background and then one day I get the right stimulus and a bunch of disparate threads come together and bam, a whole fully formed idea seems to appear. So I can personally attest that this can happen to people if they have the sort of mind that works that way. But Grunfeld isn't buying it. She says it is beyond impossible that one person, quote, can write six thick books that are translated into 55 languages and sell more than 250 million copies all in less than 10 years? Is it probable that the stories then get filmed and commercially exploited to the degree seen here without any well-thought-out strategy or highly professional players behind them? So, was the Norwegian filmmaker joking, or was she serious? Some people noted, hey, wow, what a surprise. Here's a woman in the arts attacking the accomplishments of another woman in the arts. Could jealousy be a factor? And then other people took that quaffle and ran with it. Some people say, really, the books had been planned for ages and were written by a team of authors, and that the whole J.K. Rowling character was manufactured to create mystique and appeal. A rags-to-riches story of sudden inspiration on a train, a few years of hard work, and then everlasting fame and success. These folks point out the whole Nancy Drew thing that started back in 1959, eventually spawning 78 books between then and 1985. The Nancy Drew books were written by Carolyn Keene, except they weren't. The Nancy Drew character was actually the brainchild of children's author Edward Straitmeyer. He created the Straitmeyer Syndicate, the first book company to specifically target children as an audience. They published the Nancy Drew books as well as the Hardy Boys, Tom Swift, the Rover Boys, and the Bobsy Twins, among others. The syndicate ran from 1899 until the mid-1980s when they eventually sold up to Simon & Schuster. Many of these books were written by a team of writers operating under a single pseudonym. Laura Lee Hope for the Bobsy Twins, Victor Appleton for Tom Swift, Chester K. Steele for the Mansion of Mystery series, Franklin Dixon for the Hardy Boys, and Carolyn Keene for Nancy Drew. So, if this has happened in the past once before, certainly it could happen again, right? Except in the camera-happy, media-rich world of today, a famous person, even a writer, needs to make appearances and give interviews and things like this. So, an out-of-work actor was hired to play this J.K. Rowling in public. Again, it's hard to know if people who promote this line of thinking are serious, trolling, or just having fun. Regardless, though, it does detract from Miss Rowling's well-earned success, and that is a bit of a shame. Strike, Strike one! one. After all the hairy hoopla, Rowling decided she wanted to write something else. She wrote The Casual Vacancy, which is actually a pretty excellent book, but found that many of the judgments and critiques of that book were tinted with the magic pixie dust left over from Harry Potter. The work was just not being judged on its own merits, with negative reviews dropping in tons of Harry Potter terminology and references, of course. Rowling thought that maybe if she wanted to write a non-wizarding book, she would need a new strategy. So she started the Cormoran Strike Detective series under a pseudonym of her own, Robert Galbraith. 
The book jacket mentions that this is a pseudonym, but for a man who had been a member of the Royal Military Police, and the fake name was for his own protection, much like how John Le Carre was a pseudonym for David Cornwell. Pseudonyms aren't all that uncommon. Mark Twain was Samuel Clemens, Lewis Carroll was Charles Dodson, George Orwell was actually Eric Blair, Marianne Evans wrote under the name George Eliot, Charlotte Bronte used the name Curer Bell, Agatha Christie wrote some books under the name Mary Westmacott, even Stephen King had written books under the pen name Richard Bachman, and Erica Leonard, who wrote the Fifty Shades of Grey series under the name E.L. James, has also written books under the awesome pen name Snow Queen's Ice Dragon, which is pretty obviously not a real name, but it's fantastic. Rowling herself with the Harry Potter books has mentioned numerous times how she had originally submitted the book first under her real name, Joanne Rowling, but got no bite, so she degendered it to just J.K. Rowling, and suddenly, publishers were interested. After initially being rejected by a couple of publishers, the first Corman Strike book, The Cuckoo's Calling, came out in April 2013 to extremely modest sales. It got a few reviews, mainly pretty positive, but nothing to, shall we say, write home about. However, the Sunday Times was interested to know how this first-time author, a former military cop named Robert Galbraith, had written such a self-assured first novel. They uncovered what was what and, on July 13th, revealed that Galbraith was actually J.K. Rowling. After that, everyone in their house elf wanted to take a look and the book jumped to the number one bestseller slot on Amazon. And suddenly there were many, many, many reviews forthcoming. This, of course, led some wags to cynically suggest that Rowling herself had leaked the info in order to boost poor sales. Before jumping to the number one slot, it had been sitting comfortably at the 4,709th place on the Amazon sales list. However, the Times said they had discovered this from the wife of a lawyer who had contacted them via Twitter. Rowling herself had had a weird experience as well when the BBC approached Robert Galbraith with an eye to turning Cuckoo's Calling into a TV miniseries, and Rowling knew that she couldn't take the meeting without exposing herself because she really wanted to get three books out at least in secret, hiding behind the pseudonym. Well, it all came out, and that was that. And yes, she was unhappy the cat was out of the bag, but she continued to write Corman Strike books, which for the record, I have to say I quite like with five of them out now as of this recording, and possibly as many as another five on the way. Pick a little, tweet a little, pick a little, tweet a little. Because, of course, she was right. J.K. Rowling is under enormous scrutiny and often in the public eye. It has come out that her first husband abused her physically. He says he just slapped her once and she deserved it and that she also suffered a serious sexual assault when she was in her 20s. This has made her something of an early 21st century feminist icon because she, too, has suffered the injustices of gender inequality and toxic male attitudes. She's often said that her number one hero was Jessica Mitford, a very left-wing civil rights activist and journalist who fought in the Spanish Civil War against Franco's fascists, and another hero was Robert F. Kennedy. Rowling is a lifelong labor voter, which for you non-British people is left-wing, donating a million pounds to the party in 2008. She also gave a million pounds to the Better Together campaign, which was on the stay side of the referendum as to whether Scotland should leave the UK or not. She was resident in Scotland at the time and so eligible to vote. She felt quite strongly about this, comparing those who wanted Scottish independence to the Death Eaters in her book, the racists who think only pure blood, witches, and wizards have value. In 2016, she campaigned for the UK to remain in the EU. So far, so center-left. 
But people liked to poke and nitpick and some offbeat charges were made against the Harry Potter books. For example, in them, Hermione wants to free the enslaved house elves, and yet the house elves themselves, by and large, do not want to be free, leading some commentators to think that maybe this was coded apologism for slavery or even tacit approval of it. Others thought that Professor Lupin's lycanthropy was a coded reference to AIDS and possibly pedophilia since Lupin got the werewolf disease after being assaulted by a man when he was a child. The LGBTQ community loved her because in the Harry Potter books, all types are welcome and treated fairly, even the misfits, the different ones. Plus, as she said, Dumbledore's gay. When Ireland was discussing same-sex marriage in 2016, she joked that Dumbledore and Gandalf could get married there if the law passed. The Westboro Baptist Church, you know, the complete jerkwad American ultra-Calvinist church that really, really, really hates gay people, said that they would boycott that wedding if it happened, apparently unaware that both Dumbledore and Gandalf are fictional characters. Rowling has said that, quote, bigotry is probably the thing I detest most. Her rejoinder to the Westboro Church was savage. Alas, she said, the sheer awesomeness of such a union in such a place would blow your tiny bigoted minds out of your thick, sloping skulls. Don't get in a word war with a writer, Westboro. But then along comes 2018 and Rowling got into Twitter trouble. In March that year, she liked a post by someone else that said, men in dresses get support, which is a form of misogyny, a tweet seen by many as possibly being transphobic. And she had liked it, and so therefore was showing support for those sentiments. Her spokesperson responding to the backlash said, Rowling often wields her smartphone one-handed, like some kind of Texas Ranger, and frequently likes tweets by accident. However, some people smell the rat. In June 2019, which is Pride Month in most of the world, internet sleuths discovered that Rowling was following, in among the 270 Twitter accounts she follows, 11 accounts the community had flagged as transphobic ones. Among them were Magdalene Burns, who compared trans people to those who once wore blackface, meaning trying to pretend to be something that they're not, i.e. women, and Julie Bindle, an English radical lesbian feminist who has pushed for straight women to give lesbianism a try, quote, because it makes sense, and who says that marriage is never a feminist act because of all the historical baggage associated with it, as well as taking stances that gender roles are socialized and the very concept of gender needs to be eliminated from our society. However, Bindle has also said gender reassignment surgery just reinforces gender stereotypes because it contributes to the idea that women have one kind of bits and men have another, and that GID, or gender identity disorder, does the same thing. None of these attitudes make her popular with the trans community who have been pushing the narrative that trans women are real women. Near the end of 2019, feminist Maya Forstatter tweeted comments in response to a government project to allow people to declare their own gender. Her position is that sex is a biological fact, but gender is a socially constructed concept, and conflating the two does neither feminists nor trans people any good. Rowling tweeted support of Forstater, adding that, quote, sex is real, which is not actually what Forstater was saying, but anyway. In June 2020, Rowling tweeted that essentially she believed in biological determinism, which is that certain behaviors are dictated by biological considerations, such as the makeup of a person's genitalia and the levels of testosterone or estrogen in their bodies, an idea that has been roundly debunked as pseudoscience. She tweeted about, quote, people who menstruate, trying to say that those people are not and cannot be the same as people born biologically male, but who identify in gender terms as a woman. 
Many people, including actors in the Harry Potter films, felt the need to publicly come out against all of this and Rowling's tweets. Members of both the trans and LGBTQ community went wild over this stuff, and Rowling really did herself no favors by kind of digging in her heels. When horror writer Stephen King, whose books had shared the warmth of the bonfire with her own, tweeted in support of trans women, she deleted the post from her feed, and other people noticed that she had done this. Rowling started complaining about cancel culture, supporting all sorts of people she thought were being unfairly targeted, like a woman who'd lost her job at the New York Times when she supported the moronic notion of Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton that the military should be called in to wrangle the BLM protesters. Also in June 2020, Rowling put out a 36 or 3700 word screed stating her position on this topic, saying things like, quote, if sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. I know and love trans people, but erasing the concept of sex removes the ability of many to meaningfully discuss their lives. She also seemed to be saying that letting anyone who identified with a certain gender use a particular bathroom was opening the door to anyone and that people who, for example, do not actually identify as women gender-wise would take advantage of laxity in bathroom usage to gain entry into women's bathrooms for nefarious purposes. After all, how are you supposed to know if a person who says they identify as a woman is being serious or not, goes the argument. This whole bathroom issue was recently blown up in the U.S. like so many things that try to change the status quo. Trans people are finally getting something of a public voice and there are a lot of bumps in the road. This is not the place to go into this topic in detail. The bathroom issue and other trans topics will have to wait for a future episode. But Rowling's essay got both condemnation and support. It received a nomination from the BBC for the prestigious Russell Prize. Unfortunately, U.S. Oklahoma Senator James Lankford said he also read that essay and it influenced his thinking to the point that he managed to block the Equality Act from passing. This was a bill that would have amended the 1964 Civil Rights Act to include sexual orientation and gender identity as protected. The day after the bill failed to pass, people demanded Rowling's literary agency Blair Partnership issue a statement in support of trans rights. They refused, and so four writers of that agency resigned in protest. Transfiguration. One of the issues J.K. Rowling is running into is her apparent objection, along with several other pretty hardline feminists, to the trans community's use of the kind of tagline, trans women are real women. I mean, it is short and easy to remember and kind of makes their point somewhat. Trans folks and their supporters use this to indicate that trans women should be treated just like cis women in society. But some feminists say, no, that is not correct. Gender is one thing, biological sex is another thing, and trans women tying themselves to all women, and so by extension to feminism, is unwelcome. They are separate groups. The issues women have been dealing with for ages are not the same ones that trans women have been dealing with for the most part. And we're not even getting into trans men or gender fluid folks here. The trans community has always been sort of an uneasy subset of the LGBTQ community, but recently some of the thought leaders that support trans people have said, okay, it's not that these people are gay, it's that their bodies don't match their internal gender identities and that's a different thing. 
or as other people might put it, their sex, which is biological, does not match their gender, which is subjective identity. Rowling seems to subscribe to this idea, but the trans community has taken umbrage. Any discussion about trans women being real women or not is simply not allowed. This is our tagline, and you are either with us or you are against us. The disconnect is that both sides of this argument are using the same words, but they're using them with different meanings and in different contexts. And social media is not a place for subtlety. And yes, there is a sort of cancel culture mentality to some extent that arises from a very real anger and frustration among trans people that they just can't seem to catch a break. The gay community doesn't want them, and apparently neither do the feminists. Rowling continues to plow ahead anyway. As a writer, you'd think she'd be good at recognizing nuance and language and so make her points clear. But she does not, partly because she is using Twitter, which is by design just short bursts of words. So trans people and their allies are piling on Rowling, calling for boycotts of her books and speaking engagements because she is transphobic, they say. And it's kind of hard to say if that charge has merit or not. Rowling certainly seems to be increasingly on board with what is called trans-exclusionary radical feminism, or TERF, T-E-R-F. In August 2020, Carrie Kennedy, president of the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Ripple of Hope Award, said she found Rowling's previous statements, quote, deeply troubling and, quote, transphobic. So Rowling returned her Ripple of Hope Human Rights Award that she received the previous year in protest. Critics have noted that there seemed to be some anti-trans stuff in the later Corman strike novels, including in the most recent book, Troubled Blood, published September 15, 2020, there's a villain who is a cis man who dresses as a woman to kill people. However, it's not like Rowling invented that. I mean, go all the way back to 1960 and the movie Psycho. And the character is not specified as being a transgendered person or even a transvestite. This was pointed out by people who liked the book. A week after the book came out, Rowling tweeted that people should support the Wild Women Workshop, women, W-O-M-Y-N, which is a hardline feminist way of spelling women without the word men in it. They sell what they call radical feminist merch for fearless Amazons. Unfortunately, one of their swag categories is called gender critical with buttons, stickers, signs, and t-shirts that say things like biology isn't bigotry. Female biology is not an identity. Female is not a feeling. Cis my arse. Don't call me cis. F your pronouns. Woman is not a costume. There's no such thing as a lesbian with a penis. Sorry about your penis, bro. Trans women are men. Transition equals conversion therapy. And trans activism is misogyny. Yikes. And there are plenty of other nuggets as well. So, yeah. I certainly see why the trans community thinks that that's a transphobic group. Rowling has certainly decided which side of this particular line she stands on, and that is that feminism is one thing and trans is another, and don't put your chocolate in my peanut butter. Self-identified TERFs have started using the phrases, I love J.K. Rowling and I stand with Rowling in their tweets and writings about how trans and feminism should remain separate. So, Rowling's probably a TERF. And in a December 2020 interview on the LGBTQ Nation website, she said that 90% of the letters she gets agrees with her trans stance, but many of those people are afraid to speak up publicly because of repercussions from the internet rage monster, which seems unlikely. In that same interview, she makes a somewhat subtle point, quote, I believe everybody should be free to live a life that is authentic to them and that they should be safe to do so. 
I also believe we need a more nuanced conversation around women's rights and around the huge increase in numbers of girls and young women who are seeking to transition. She is against what she sees as a modern-day pressure on teenagers to transition and is an outspoken opponent of puberty blockers, which are chemicals that suppress the hormones and other things that go into sort of shoring up and solidifying one's biological sex in a person's teens. Okay, fair enough. But she continues to have what her publicist calls unfortunate middle-aged moments and could probably easily make her points without angering people if she chose to do so. She is a writer after all. But maybe she thinks she's trolling the trolls or maybe she's just fed up with it because she thinks she's trying to make a very particular point and she is tired of the shrill argumentative rhetoric surrounding this point, which she thinks is an important one. And those on the trans women are real women side of things continue to sniff around, finding all sorts of proof that Rowling is actually a rabid anti-trans maniac who wants to round them all up into camps. Like the claim in the middle of 2020 that her detective novel pseudonym, Robert Galbraith, is an intentional reference to Robert Galbraith Heath, a notorious gay conversion therapy pioneer who used to shock gay men's brains with electricity in an effort to cure them of their homosexuality. She said she had no idea that guy had existed when she chose the name, but now that's the name and she's stuck with it. So as seems to be so common these days in the social media sphere, some are totally with her and others are totally against her with few, if any, somewhere in the middle. Some anti-rollingites have started referring to her as she who must not be named, a reference to her main Harry Potter baddie. So that's an awful lot of chatter about J.K. Rowling and her outrageously successful seven-volume children's book series. I think we all know that there's no actual magic, and so all of that stuff is ridiculous. As for the theories about Ron being Dumbledore and so on, who knows? She says no. It is super unlikely that she is a front for a consortium of other writers and we know from her other books that she's actually a pretty good writer though some critics just don't like her and that was before all the transphobia stuff as for the transphobia thing and her stance on feminism it seems to me that perhaps social media is just not the place to have any kind of nuanced conversation about an important topic my read on it is that Rowling is very firmly ensconced in the idea that feminism is a long-standing issue of how people who have the biological sex of female have been treated in society for, let's face it, centuries, and that the trans thing is a separate thing altogether. In their defense, trans people are simply trying to find a way to make their voices heard. Why a wordsmith such as Rowling doesn't try to meet them halfway and understand this is a little bit of a puzzle. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>